Let us pray. Our dear, gracious Heavenly Father, there is absolutely nothing more holy, more important, more personal that we could be studying this morning than your crucifixion. To think of what you endured for us. We also want to think about how Matthew has framed it, your dear servant. And so, we just ask God that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to feel, Lord God. And we just thank you. Thank you that it was the will of the Father and the will of the Son that we might have a a substitute on that cross so that we might be reconciled to you. So give us a profound sense of gratitude and an interested sense of inquiry uh, this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And let there be people produced at the doorway. Oh, thank God. All right. Um, So glad to see all of you today. We are in Matthew uh, chapter 27, not quite the end of Matthew 27. Jesus has uh, already been arrested. Uh, He has been, um, and in that arrest, of course, betrayed uh, by Judas. Unfairly treated before that Jewish high priest and the council and turned over to the Romans and then condemned to die in the place of Barabbas. Barabbas was um, scheduled to die. Jesus took his place on the cross. And I just, as we talked about last week, that is the gospel. That is, we are all Barabbas. Jesus takes our place. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Pilate could find nothing deserving death for Jesus, but he had no will to keep Jesus from death. Uh, no will to overcome uh, the people. And so he washes his hands in this symbolic gesture, which I think probably to him was pretty profound, um, uh, to say that he's not responsible for Jesus' death. I'm not, I don't think that's really how it works. Right? I mean, he, he did not show the leadership of his office. And, um, and the church has never been uh, sure that's how it works either, because we've been saying for 2,000 years that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It was at his, his hands, under his authority. Uh, but after Barabbas is released and Pilate has washed his hands, Jesus is scourged. Which means he is nearly whipped to death. And then he is handed over to the Roman guards. And that's where we pick up uh, the story. These were the guards who would escort him, so to speak. Uh, not with any sense of dignity, but would be the ones who get him from uh, from the Antonian fortress on out to uh, Golgotha. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, so they're just getting him ready. And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed from his hand and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So, Pilate tried to find a way to let him go. The soldiers were not so kind. You remember that after the Jewish trial was over before the high priest, uh, they, those in the trial mocked him, they beat him, they spit on him, they taunted him saying, prophesy, who is it that hit you? And the same thing, the same thing happens uh, here after the trial, the Roman trial, before, before Pilate. And you can just think of this sort of cruel hilarity of this scene, not from our perspective, but from the Romans' perspective. They hate the Jews. There's such a pain in their, well, we'll say their sides. And, and now one who is claiming uh, to be a king is in their control. And this is uh, to them so fun, so uh, ironic, so uh, hilarious. These common soldiers have in their control this Jewish king. And so they get the whole battalion. Now, it's probably not the whole battalion. Matthew may have said that for effect. A battalion was 600 men, um, and it's unlikely that they would have crowded 600 guys in there, but, but a lot, a large crowd of these soldiers. Certainly he was far out, outnumbered. And, and, and probably not surprisingly, if you've been following Matthew for the last year and a half, uh, you know that he's dropping Old Testament hints along the way. And so uh, perhaps we could turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard that did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in fact, are all informed by the Old Testament narrative of this suffering servant. We saw Zechariah chapter 11, Zechariah 13, I will strike the... Uh, shepherd and the sheep will scatter, just on and on. So they strip him. I mean, you can think of uh, the... He's already bloodied. His, his flesh is torn up on his back from the scourging, and they rip the, the linen cloak off of him. And uh, that would have, I think, been painful. And this crown of thorns, it doesn't talk, I mean, Matthew at least does not talk about them pressing the thorns into his head. It does say they took the reed and hit him in the head. It was, a, just a, was it just a floppy reed or was it more like bamboo? I, I, I don't know. They showed us a tree that, that you know, like the crown of thorns where it'll come from. How? Yeah, so the, 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 the thorns on them, there is, there is a, a, a vine. It's None of, none of the Gospels are specific about which spiny, 
how how they got it together, but but certainly there are there those things that have have thorns like this. Yeah, sharp, awful. Um, and so they, they put this scarlet robe on him because of course purple is the color of royalty, and and um, and then they this they tie together this crown of, of thorns and they put a, a reed in his hand like a scepter. So this is a mock enthronement. Um, and you can just think of the sorry sight of Jesus. He's bloodied, he's beaten, he's bruised, he's exhausted. And these soldiers are, are mocking, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. But this is as close as Jesus ever gets on this side of the cross to an actual enthronement. Because his actual enthronement comes in his ascension, right? And ultimately in his return. Ultimately, it will come in his return. Our culture does not understand monarchy very well. And I wonder what it means to you that Jesus is the king. That Jesus is our king. What... what in, in, a, in a democratic culture that uh, the people vote for the leader and it turns over every four to eight years, how, how, how do you understand Jesus as king? Ruler. Ruler? Okay. Um. No right answer. I'm just, I just want to know how you think of this when we talk about Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, how do you think of... Our spiritual leader. Ultimate leader. Ultimate well, leader. A monarch has the ability to say what's right or wrong. The, he is the dividing line of what is right and wrong. Yes. Ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. Okay. Well, I, I mean, these are all really good. What else? Anything else? Yeah, Mary. Under the concept of noblesse oblige, it was the king's responsibility to care for all the people in his kingdom. So, not just the divine authorities that the people must submit to, but actually the one who is charged by his office of caring for all the people. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What else? Was it the idea of the British rulers were actually given authority by God. So you're referring, uh, Susie referred to the divine right of kings. So that God actually, like, and it was British, the French, I mean, I think probably anybody uh, who became a king said God put them there. Um, but, the, um, but yeah, the divine right of king, that it was actually God's will that they become a king. Uh, related to that, I thought about how a king is, is, um, gets there by his lineage, Right, and it's uh, he's born into that, and so Jesus, of course, was born into as the son of the Father. When we talk about God as our Father, He is our Father because we are in Christ, and He is the Father to the Son, and Jesus is Son in relation uh, to the Father. Which is, you know, sometimes we have these. Um, we talk about you know, there's different ways to talk about the Trinity that He's you know, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Uh, and, and those are not incorrect, but those are what He is unto us. And, and what 
Father and the Son really are descriptors of what they are unto one another as they have revealed themselves uh, to us. The, so the, the King, Jesus, King Jesus, He is the King unto uh, us because He is uh, born into that line from His, from his Father. Um, it's important, I think, to think about it. And I've written down just a couple things. Supreme authority, uh, divine right, right of lineage. All the things that you said are, are right, but it is uh, ultimately He is the one who, with the ultimate authority and who uh, we can trust that authority because He is the one who is uh, charged to care for His people. And unlike many kings, uh, He is the one who actually will care for His people. And in fact, he is, that's what He's doing. That's what He's doing right now as He's sitting there silently being mocked Adopted into his we are adopted into his family. And that's right. So he is our father as because we have been brought into Christ. Right. Um, that's like, you know, every, we often say, well, we're all God's children. Well, actually, John says in the first chapter of John, it says that whoever believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Implying, of course, that we are not children of God. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but we are brought into his family as we are brought into his son by faith. So that's how he becomes. Coming under the kingship of uh, Jesus. Jesus himself said the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is present. And so, um, but he also said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So it was not a geographic, they didn't have a category for this. It's not a geographic kingdom. The geography of the kingdom of God is is the human heart. And wherever he is the king is where his kingdom is. Right? So, um, one note, just as they, as they put his clothes back on him, I mean, they just treat him so terribly. I mean, if you think about just spitting on him, I just, it's so demeaning, intentionally uh, demeaning. And um, it mentions they, they take the scarlet robe and they put his own robe back on him. It does not mention that, for whatever reason, it doesn't mention the, the crown of thorns. And you think about all of Christian art, pretty much. Jesus on the cross, he's wearing the crown of thorns. No gospel, none of the four gospels talk about whether or not they kept the crown of thorns on him. But it doesn't say it removed it. So it's it's certainly plausible. It makes the visual point, doesn't it? To have the crown of thorns, you know, sometimes driven into his forehead, um, artistically depicted... Uh, that, that it makes the point that, that he is, in a sense, enthroned on the cross. And, um, and yet, I think, that is, I think we can recognize that as helpful, imaginatively helpful. We're not really sure. Um, but I think it's certainly plausible. It would have been sort of funny. I and mean, they couldn't give up the scarlet robe, but these were just, you know, they just pulled this weed out of the ground, and so they, they didn't need to take it from him. You know, and and it has become such a symbol to us. And this is all. This is the only place it's mentioned. It's not mentioned on the cross or any anything else. But I mean, like you know that on Good Friday we have a crown of thorns that we put on the altar. Uh, you know that if you if you ever followed sort of um, the uh, artifacts, you know what are they called? The um, relics. You, and I and I don't, but. Uh, the crown of thorns was it was housed at 
Notre Dame, I mean, or something, they, were, they, they claimed to have it or something. That, and the, the priest who ran back in when Notre Dame was burning went in to get the crown of thorns or something. I don't know. Nobody, I still haven't seen it. But um, whether it's the actual crown, it doesn't really matter, does it? It is so important to how we understand the crucifixion of Jesus, that crown of thorns. No, I won't say that. Um, all right, anything else about, we're, we're headed to the cross now. Anything else before this? Yeah, I'd like to uh, make a comment. You wonder, those who understood uh, the Jewish laws and, and many of the uh, uh, prophecies, uh, wonder if they really understood what they were doing, or did they in fact not care? I don't think they understood at all. I don't think they saw... The question was, did, they, did those who were doing this understand the prophecies and did they just not care? I don't think they had eyes to see it at all. I think that was the whole issue. They were blind. These supposed experts in the law were blind to, to how it was... what was actually happening. Because if they could see it, they would have stopped. I, I don't think they saw... I mean, they saw Jesus as a blasphemer. He was a human. He looked like you and me. Just There was nothing extraordinary about him, and he was not the Messiah they expected. And so I, I don't think that there was anything that um, where they saw. It was only the disciples and those who were reflecting upon it afterwards that they came to see that it was exactly as... They didn't see the correlation in the on the Pentateuch or in their in their Jewish Bible that he represented. I mean, I mean, I don't think if they were beating him up and spitting on him uh, and saying, "Prophesy, who is it that hit you?" that they thought, "Oh, this is just like Isaiah 50 verse six. It says he um, he turned his back to the smiters." I don't. I mean, no, I don't think. And even the sheep and the shepherd and and like I don't. I don't think they saw it at all. They, well, it they was theirs right. to recognize, and they didn't. I mean, that's that's the. I don't think it was. I mean, that's why they said his blood be on us and on our children. I mean, that's which was. It it is because it's because they believed this was a a false prophet, and they couldn't recognize it. So I don't think. And now, I mean, like anything else, I could be wrong, but I don't think they saw it for what it was. I think that's the whole problem. Yeah, Richard. It, it, the people we're talking about today are not Jews. These are Romans. Well, I think you were speaking specifically about the Romans. Oh, oh, I, mean, I mean, about the Jews. I was speaking about the Jews. Yeah, yeah. yes. and I did want to make one other point. About yeah, that. the Romans certainly couldn't have seen it. They wouldn't have had the context. But yeah. in, 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 I think, correct me, but I believe in all four Gospels, yeah, sure. Once Barabbas is released, the Jews disappear. They're not part of anything from there on in until the resurrection and then the apostles come back in. I think the, the Jews were placated by the release of Barabbas. They were satisfied. They went home. We'll, we'll, home. Now we'll, we'll, see the, we'll see the Jews again at the foot of the cross. Yeah, yeah, they're there. We'll see it in just a minute. Yes? There's only one insight that 
there might be some understanding. That's when Cephas, uh, the head priest, said, it's better for one man to, to die than for all to suffer. Yes, and I think that's followed up by saying he didn't realize what he was saying. But um, but yeah, so Caiaphas was saying. That, I, I, I agree with. I don't think he realized yes. that he was actually fulfilling the prophecy when he said that. Right. No. So when Caiaphas says it's better that one man die for the people than it all should suffer, I think he's saying strategically, is if we can give him one, the Romans one person to just sort of seize on, then the rest of us will be fine. Like I think that he's speaking strategically, but didn't know. Sort of how how well he was speaking. Okay. So as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, which is in Africa, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, means they forced him to carry the cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, Golgotha, either way, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by him uh, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, that's what I was talking about, Richard, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of, the, the king of Israel. Let him come down from now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Gets all over me. Simon of Cyrene helps Jesus. So it makes good theater to see Jesus carrying the whole cross when we reenact it. And in fact, on Good Friday, I will, well, I'll of course get George to carry it, but it's, uh, it's uh, about 100 pounds, and I, you know, we drag it, drag it through the, down the aisle, and, um, and, and it's, it's, I think it's powerful, certainly powerful from my standpoint as, as one who's carrying it, but um, scholars, for the most part, will, will point to the fact that the, uh, there's an upright that stays in one place. In the ground, and the the thief is carrying the crossbeam, and so and it's you know probably like a railroad tie essentially, you know, just a big piece of wood uh, that they've got to carry, and then um, and then they'll hook that onto the the upright, uh, whether sometimes by ropes, sometimes by nails, and of course John tells us specifically that it was with nails from Jesus, and 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 it makes good sense because the Sabbath is coming up. And it's an important Sabbath because it's the Passover. So, um, we're not told why Simon was commandeered, why he was grabbed, why he specifically or anybody was grabbed out of the crowd. You know, he's probably just going to Jerusalem, he's selling something. 
and this African guy and the, and the Roman soldiers grab and say, you carry this. And they could do that. Why? Probably because Jesus was so exhausted. He physically was not standing up under the weight uh, of, of, this, of this beam. And, um, and it sounds like a really unlucky event, doesn't it? For, for Simon, daggum, he was just trying to mind his own business and go... He didn't have anything to do with this guy. He was not even from the place. He's just he's just trying to go sell his wares. Um, the question is, was it worth it? it? Might sound like a weird question. Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now that doesn't mean anything to us, but the reason that Mark would use the names Alexander and Rufus, and the reason that all of them would have used the name Simon of Cyrene is because these are people that, that the original audience would have known. The, group, the Christians that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were writing to would have said, oh, I know Alexander. Why did they know Alexander and Rufus? Because they had been brought into the Christian community because their dad carried the cross. Simon carried the cross that would be the instrument of world salvation. And he apparently put his faith in Christ. So I have a friend who um, got into a lot of trouble for being an idiot. He wasn't being bad. He was just being an idiot. And he uh, spent some, some time in jail. Like three weeks. And um, he fired a gun accidentally. I mean, he, was just, he had it in his dorm room. And it went out the window and it hit somebody in the leg. And, um, and nobody knew what had happened. And his roommate kept quiet for a couple of years, but then his roommate let it slip, and then he got in trouble. And it was obviously not malicious, and it was so thankful it didn't hit in his chest or something like that. It just hit his leg. But anyway, he had to he had to he had to um, spend some time in jail. And when he was in jail, his uh, that's where he met Christ. And I'm always remembered that because his you know like after he was released he had a probation officer and his probation officer knew that he had met Jesus while he was in, in that jail and he said it was worth it wasn't it and he was like this is a trick question <laughs> like, I don't know how to answer this and he could see the probation officer could see the, the look on his face he said you hit a man in the leg with a bullet and you met the king of kings and the lord of lords and your salvation is sure. It, you spent 20 days in jail. It was worth it. Now, don't go shoot anybody in the leg. But his point was, if God can take something terrible and use it to bring you into the kingdom, then ultimately it was worth it. The suffering of this present world is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. And so, I, you know, I just wanted to sort of frame that. I don't know how you all came to Christ. I know how some of you did. But if God has used 
a terrible event in your life to bring you to him or bring you closer to him, then there is a way to look at that in which it was worth it. Is does Simon, I don't know if Simon lost his job, I don't know if he lost a day's wages, I don't know, I don't know what happened, but I know it, it looks to me and it looks to scholars like he met the Lord. And he carried the cross by which you and I are sitting here today, 2,000 years later. It is, um, it, was a, it was an unlucky day and an extraordinary blessing to Simon. It's interesting to me that they don't mention that Jesus carried the cross too on here. You know, one of the things I want to highlight, and I can jump ahead a little bit, is that Matthew is extraordinarily understated. I mean, we think about, like, Passion of the Christ, or we think about, you know, the, the, it's, I mean, I'm a preacher. It's good to, like, spend some time on the excruciating nature of crucifixion and, and really draw out your emotion about this, right? We want you to feel it. Matthew says, they crucified him. That's it. You know, it's just, they scourged him. <laughs> He doesn't talk about the cat of nine tails and the glass and the, and the bones and he doesn't talk about the mutilated flesh and the blood. He just says they scourged him, they crucified him. I mean, he just... I, why do you think that is? Because your mind can be more powerful than words. Mind? Because your mind can be more powerful than words? Okay. What else? Why, why else? It was normal back then. Pardon me? It was normal back then. It was normal back then. Well, okay. So yeah. Known Simon would have also probably witnessed a few crucifixions and scourgings. They knew what they knew what it was. Yeah, I can I can certainly about knowing crucifixions. Prior to this event, Pontius Pilate had a thousand Jews crucified on the road, leading from. I think it was from Galilee down towards Jerusalem. Those were the ones that had rebelled, or part of the ones that had rebelled. So crucifixion was the standard modus operandi of the Romans. Yeah, and it was, it was put on the, the road into the city so everybody would see it on the way in. Because it, was, it, was it would be like having electric chairs lined up on the way into the city. I mean, it's just, it is so that we know who's in charge and don't. But they didn't empty the crosses when the guy died. You Sometimes they would keep him the up there. Yeah, well, I mean, they would take him down for the, for the Passover Sabbath, but yes, that's, that's why. Uh, um, but yeah, no, normally they would keep him up there. I, I agree with that. So the wine, is, they offer him wine when he gets there. It's mixed with bile. It seems unlikely that, I mean, bile is the <coughs> gallbladder product. Seems unlikely that it would be actual animal gallbladder product mixed in with the wine, but maybe just sour wine nonetheless. Um, Psalm 69. Jeez. Oh, Save me, O oh my God. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. And the flood sweeps over me. So 
um, David is is crying out to God in this overwhelming, awful situation. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim from waiting for my God. Um, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. And you go on, and I hope you will, Psalm 69. But um, verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now that's not a prophecy, is it? They will one day when the Messiah comes, they will give Him sour wine to drink. It's not a prediction. It's a statement. And the one who would come to fulfill the the promise to David that he would uh, sit on David's throne for all eternity as, as king over God's people, that he is now fulfilling that in an even more powerful way than, than what David, the original author, had said. So, again, these Old Testament Easter eggs, we might call them, or just hints, So just, again, the, the description of cru- crucifixion is just a single participle. It's just, just unremarkable. Um, it's, uh, we think of, again, the agony, the terrible violence. Luke 23 has uh, Jesus crying out as they're nailing Him to the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Which, again, just like him in the garden, is uh, saying, uh, saying, not my will, but yours be done. This is an, just an extraordinary uh, example, sort of extreme example of grace and love in the midst. I mean, we, it's just very, it's, it's, it, seems, it seems naive for me to say this is how we should love. <clears throat> because this is... Uh, it's so much more true, I think, or so much more accessible that this is how we are loved. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But, um, but it is. There is a, a model. I mean, this is a place to get to for all of us. I, got a, I have a question. Yes. I think the suffering was made so, was amplified so much, not just by the act that took place, but knowing ahead of time what you're facing. It's very different when you go into a situation and you run into these things. But when you know ahead of time, that just... When you know... So you're talking about the, uh, the anticipation. Right. The, the anxiety of anticipation that comes. I mean, I, you know, Matthew doesn't comment on that. About how He doesn't really give us any of how Jesus was feeling. He could easily have said... And Jesus felt this while they were beating him, or they, you know, he. Um, but it, we don't get any of that. We don't get the internal monologue after after this. All we get is Luke's saying, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." But he, we don't we don't get all of that. Um, but what we do get is the sense that this is, in fact, because Matthew is shaping it by the Old Testament. Verses that he that this is exactly how God has planned it out, and so now we get to um, uh, Psalm 22. Victims were naked. Um, that's that's how that's how people were crucified. They were crucified naked. Just a, so 
you know, we always get, of course, the artist just not going to draw Jesus, paint Jesus up on the cross naked, so they put a loincloth over him, but he was almost certainly naked. So there's humiliation in the midst of everything else. But here they, once they take his garment back off again, when they get to the cross, um, they divide his, they cast lots for it. They divide his garments among them. And, and Psalm twenty-two eighteen says exactly that. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So we're going to look at this psalm again and again, actually. This is the same psalm that began. We're going to, we'll say this on um, Monday, Thursday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. 22. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. So the charge is that, they, uh, that he was the king of the Jews. And that really is why he was killed, isn't it? That he, whether it was jealousy or spite or blind spirituality by the religious leaders uh, before, but for you and me, uh, salvation is from the Jews. He is the king. This is how he becomes our king. He was killed because he is Isaiah's suffering servant. So I want to read for you what uh, we will read on uh, Good Friday. Isaiah 53. It just always amazes me that this was written 700 years before Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, meaning the wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people, and they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. So, again, Psalm 22 talks about those wag, wagging their heads at the, at the sufferer. I've just got a few minutes. I want to ask you, what is, what is atonement? Like a release from sin. A release from sin, yes. Becoming one with God. At-one-ment. Yes. A lot of times people say that, at-one-ment. That is a trick of English language. It's not incorrect, but um, but it's not. It is the means by which we become one. But what is actually atonement? Payment has been given. Payment has been given. Yeah. Yeah. The price has been paid. Yeah. That's right. So what is substitutionary atonement? That's a theological term. But what what might that be means? Someone else paid the price. That's right. So, you're before the judge. The judge declares you guilty. Then the judge gets up, takes off his robes, and gets handcuffs put on him, and goes away to pay the year time. Great spiritual truths. Mm-hmm. Substitutionary atonement, I think, is is. I mean, like. This is that's it is the gospel. This is when we say Jesus died for our sins. He didn't just die for our sins. He fulfilled the law, right? He he loved the Father perfectly. He brought restoration to the sick. He brought love to the marginalized. He was the fullness of the Father, and that is who who was hanging on the cross. He was the one in our place for all of us, Barabbases. Yes, Craig. I just have to say that in your analogy with the judge, the only way that that would work is if the judge had not done anything himself wrong that didn't deserve to go to jail for. I mean, it's just an analogy, Craig. It's got his limits, man. I'm not saying the judge didn't wasn't a member of a fraternity or something, right? I just. And the guy going to jail is a Jesus. Yeah, right. It's just an analogy. Um, the uh, but yeah, so the one who is hanging on the cross, of course, he was perfect. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. Um, which means every time he uh, was angry, he was angry for the right reasons and in the right way. Every time, as a teenager, he was. Tempted to press the boundaries, he pressed the boundaries in the right way. Um, he honored the Lord as God and loved Him. And this substitutionary atonement of Jesus, this God hanging on the cross so that you and I can be reconciled to God, this one who provided the means of escape from His own judgment. This is the lens through which we view our lives as Christians. And this is the lens through which we view Scripture. 
What I mean by that is the Scripture is filled with things that we are to do. Right? And everything we are to do has been fulfilled by our crucified Savior. So, when the law, when something is law in Scripture, that is, it says this is what you are to do. It's not good news. Good news says what's been done for you. Um, what is the law is what we are to do. And everything, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it should drive us to cry out for our Savior. We see both what we are to do and what we have not done. And yet, because we have this Savior, this incredibly loving, gracious God who substituted Himself and went through this suffering, and we're going to talk more about next week exactly what Jesus faced on the cross spiritually, but once we, um, once we see this, if this is the lens, what, what, it, what does it compel us to do? Obey. The thing, that we don't do it because we have to, we do it because we love Him. Because He first loved us. Right? What is that it? We make Him our King. He becomes our King. We see Him for what, who He is and what He's done for us. So, lots, I mean, good gosh, we could write a book, we could spend hours, we could spend another year and a half just, I think, just talking about, I, I, I think maybe we should not spend another year and a half. Um, <laughs> talking about it, but uh, we're going to finish up chapter 27 next week, uh, and uh, and that is, so this is mocked and crucified, next week is dead and buried, and then we'll look, then we'll have Palm Sunday, and we'll look at the, crucif- I mean the resurrection of Palm Sunday, which I know is weird, we offer Easter, we'll look at the Great Commission, and then we'll... Then, then who knows what we're going to do. I don't know. What are we going to do? Right into Mark, right? Yes, I don't know. Probably not. All right. God bless you. Go to church if you had not already been.